Well, that's a fun bumper video. Sadly, it's the last time we're going to use it because we are wrapping up this series on the Almighty Dollar. If you're new here, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors. And as we finish this series, we're asking the question, who are we serving, God or money? It's an important question. Who are we serving, the Almighty God or the Almighty Dollar? And it's important to recognize as we go through this series and and end it today, we're talking a lot about money, and that sort of feels a little strange in church, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel a little odd to be talking about money so much? Here's the thing. The Bible talks a lot about money. It really does. In fact, the Bible has more verses on money and material possessions than it does about faith or prayer. In fact, Jesus talked more about money and material possessions than he did about heaven or hell or even sin. And that's not to say that money is a more important thing, but clearly money matters to God. He talked about it a lot. And so if we don't talk about money in the church, then we are missing a lot of God's teaching for us. After all, God's word and God's will should be applied to every aspect of our lives, and that includes our money and our finances. So really, this series is not ultimately about money. It's ultimately about our relationship with God. And that relationship should impact every aspect of our lives, and that includes our money. So where better to talk about money and how God wants us to use money than in his church, where we can gather together and learn from him and his word. Now, we've talked in this series already about how God's priorities for money are different than most of our priorities for money. And that is, for most people, and maybe this isn't the case for most of us in this room, I don't know, but for most people in this country, certainly, our priorities for money look a little bit like this. First, we spend on whatever we need or want, and then if there's anything left over, we might save some, and then if there's anything left over, we might give some. But we talked about how from God's word, what we see is God's priorities for money are very different. God's priorities are that we first be generous people. That is an important priority to God. More so than us having more stuff is us being giving and generous people. And then we're supposed to be wise, like the ant. We're supposed to save wisely for the future, plan ahead wisely. We'll look at that a little bit more today. And then we're supposed to spend and, and we spend after we have taken care of giving and saving. We live below our means, we talked about last week. But now we get to the spend part. We spent a whole week on giving. Kevin walked us through that, did a fantastic job. We spent a week on saving. And now we're going to take today and talk about spending. This has not been an easy message to prepare for. And as I thought back this week as I was studying, I realized I have never heard a message on spending before. It's such a strange thing to have a message devoted to spending money. It's just weird, isn't it? But I think what you'll see today is that God's word actually does have a lot to say about spending our money, and we'll try to go through that together. First, I want to talk about how the world approaches spending money, because if you think about the way the world approaches spending money, a whole lot of money gets spent trying to help us to spend money, and there's a whole different sort of mindset around what spending money means and how our identity gets wrapped up in the things that we purchase. So I want to just show you a little clip that sort of illustrates how a lot of people in the world and culture and society around us approach spending money. I am my car, I am my clothes, I am my bank account, I am my house. I obey my thirst, I have it my way, I just do it, I deserve a break today. I double my pleasure, double my fun, I live the high life because I'm worth it. I'm looking out for number one. I wait for nothing, I have a million choices, I get what I want, I do what's best for me, I spend my time where I want to spend it, no one wastes it but me. I have the world at my fingertips. If it doesn't work, I'll throw it out and get a new one. If I'm uncomfortable, I leave, there's another place just down the street. If I'm unhappy, I'm missing something, I find it, I buy it. If I want it, I get it. I accumulate, I collect, I acquire, I take, I use, I devour, I consume. I am not the center of the universe, but I'm the center of mine. I want to know what's in it for me. I want to know what I get out of it. I'm here to find happiness. I live for comfort. I exist to be served. The world exists to serve me. I am the customer. The customer is king. I am king. I hope that video doesn't hit too closely to home, but I think it represents the perspective of a lot of people when it comes to spending money. 
We, we have this idea that our identity is wrapped up in the things that we buy and that the more we spend on things, the happier we will feel. And there are companies that spend an awful lot of money to help you do that. In fact, this year, new records will be broken as $240 billion will be spent in 2019 on marketing and advertising so that you can buy more stuff. This will be the first year, actually, that digital marketing and advertising will surpass traditional radio and TV and print advertising in the dollars spent to try to help you spend more stuff. So today what I want to do is just share with you four principles that are rooted in God's word. We're going to get into some of the nuances of them a little bit, so you know, stick with me through that. Some of it's not all the most interesting to everyone, but it'll probably be interesting to someone. And we're going to share four principles from God's word for you to keep in mind when you spend money. Now, as we go into this, I just want to say right off the bat, We're just going to scratch the surface here. There is so much to cover, and it's so unique and specific to different individuals that we're not going to be able to cover everything that's going to impact everyone the same way. So there'll probably be one or two things you'll pull away from today, and you'll go, ah, that's what I needed. The rest of it was for some other guy. And, you know, look to your left, look to your right, and you'll see that other guy. There are other people around you that may need to hear things that you don't need to hear. We're not going to cover everything for everybody, though. And so at the end of the message today, we're going to give you some opportunities to get into some classes and coaching that will help you go to a deeper level for your personal financial situation as a follow-up to this series. But with all that said, I am going to give some pretty specific financial information today, some financial advice. Not investment advice, that would be a problem, but financial advice. And we're going to talk about that, and I I want you to know why. Um, This is actually something that's very, very important to me. I'm passionate about this and have been for a long time. Uh, I, have, I have some history in the business area here of running businesses and, and launching businesses, but also of overseeing finance departments and, and international uh, ministry and working in those kinds of spaces allowed me to work with financial planners and accountants and, and lead projects with those people to get a lot of things done. So I picked up a lot, a lot along the way about finance from them. But more than that, Many years ago, as I was getting more and more involved in ministry, I started to encounter people who were in really big financial trouble. And they would come to me with different issues that sometimes were so bizarre and so interesting. Some of them involved things that I had never even heard of before that I realized I really needed to get an education on this. So I spent a ton of time researching and diving into the world of personal finance so that I could help, pe- excuse me, help people get out of some of the situations they were in. You know, people tend to get in a financial crisis that becomes a cycle, and it just repeats itself over and over again, and every time they think they've gotten themselves out of that hole, something happens and it drags them down into it again, or they make a choice that takes them down into it again, and sometimes what it takes is someone who will come alongside as a third-party objective coach and say, let me help you break out of this cycle. And that's what I wanted to be for people. So I developed a financial coaching program and training material, and I trained other coaches. And together as a team, we worked with many different people over the course of several years, helping them to get out of, in some cases, mountains and mountains of debt or financial situations that simply were not solvent, where they were just digging themselves deeper into a hole. We saw some crazy situations. Uh, some of it was the normal, you know, credit card debt and student loan debt and those types of things. But some of these were... Um, Vehicles for losing money that I'd never heard of before. Opportunities for investments, um, some, some fraud, uh, some people with credit card payments that had been transferred back and forth and built up so much so that the interest payment alone was double the size of a normal car payment. I mean, just some really incredible situations. And there may be people out there who are thinking, yeah, that's not so incredible, that's me right now. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Because I know there may be some people here who are struggling with these things. I just want you to know that as you hear financial information come from a pastor, it's because I actually am very passionate about this area, and I think that God cares a lot about what we do with money. And I'm going to try to explain that to you as we go through this together. There was one thing with all of these people that I saw and the other coaches working with me saw, with people that came to us for financial advice, there was one thing that was incredibly consistent. We always walked away thinking this, I wish they had come to me sooner. Because if they had just sought help sooner, if they hadn't been ashamed, if they hadn't thought that they could do it all on their own, then we could have saved them from an incredible amount of financial headache. I just wish they would have seen us six months sooner, 12 months sooner, before we were at this point. If they had seen us six months sooner in some cases, they wouldn't have lost their house. That kind of stuff. 
I just wish. And so, what I'm going to share with you today is going to sound weird for a sermon, okay? It's going to be based out of principles in God's word, but the job of the preacher is to take the principles of God's word that were written thousands of years ago, bridge the context to today, and apply them to our world today. And so this message is going to be very heavy on the application to our culture and our context today. And that may seem unusual, but it's exactly what we're supposed to do. Take the principles of God's word, which apply to different scenarios and world cultures and situations back then, and apply them to today, where we have a very different environment, a very different culture. We have cars, we have the internet, we have radios, we have digital currency, we have all these other things. And so we need to be wise in applying biblical principles today. So what I'm going to share with you is a lot of the stuff that I wished I could have shared with these people, all these financial coaching clients, I wished I could have shared with them six or 12 months before they came and saw me. And I would have no idea who they were to be even able to tell them that. But this is the stuff I wish I could have told them to help save them from an awful lot of trouble as they were spending money. The first thing I want to start with is, is this. For a lot of Christians, the way we view God's involvement in our money is that as long as we have given something to God, he doesn't care about what we do with the rest of it. Now, I'm not saying we actively think that, but subconsciously, I think we act that way. Here's my 10%. Now, I get to do what I want with the other 90. And what I'm going to try to communicate to you today is that God cares about all of it. He cares about what we give. We've talked about that. He cares about what we save. We've talked about that. But he cares about what we spend. The truth is, all money is God's money, and what we have is on loan to us, right? You can't take any of it with you. We are entrusted with it. We are given a, a stewardship of this money for a short period of time. Our life is, is very short, the Bible says. It's like a vapor. It's here, and then it's gone. And God entrusts us with some resources, different amounts of resources even, and expects us to be faithful with those. But none of us can take it with us when we die. I heard about a man once who thought that maybe, just maybe, he could. He was nearing death. He was an older gentleman. He called three of his most trusted individuals in his life to his bedside to, to tell them something and kind of give them a proposition. And here it is. He said, I know they say you can't take it with you when you die, but I'm really concerned about this whole afterlife thing. And I would love to at least attempt to take some with me to make sure that I have what I need in the next life. So would you please each take an envelope, a large envelope, filled with $100,000 in cash. Here's one for you, one for you, one for you. And at my funeral, would you just slip that into the casket before they put me in the ground? <laughs> well, the men thought this was a very strange request. But um, they said, okay. And so soon after that, the man died. And these three men, the doctor, one was a lawyer, one was a pastor, they came to the funeral to slip the envelope into the man's casket. And they each did that. And then afterward at the reception, they talked with each other about this unusual request that they had. And the doctor was talking to the lawyer and the pastor, and he said, look, guys, I've got to get something off my chest. We all know that money wasn't going to do him any good in the ground. And we've got this children's wing at our hospital. They needed some new equipment. It was going to be $30,000. I took $30,000 out, used it to pay for the equipment for the kids, and then gave him the 70000 and the lawyer said, oh, I'm so glad you said that. I, too, knew that this was not going to do him any good, and so I volunteer at this homeless shelter, and they needed some renovations that were going to cost $50,000, so I took out $50,000 for those renovations, and I, I put the other fifty in the casket, and the pastor looked at both of these men with just disgust. He said, I can't believe you guys. This man trusted us. He gave us one job, this one responsibility to make sure that the full $100,000 ended up in his casket. And I will have you know that I gave him the full amount. I wrote a personal check for $100,000. <laughs> Stuck it in there. You can't take it with you. It's not gonna do you any good, whether it's buried in the ground with you or not. You cannot take it with you. And so we have to be wise with how we use it on earth. I'm going to try to show you today that this is actually important to God. God cares how we use money on earth, how we use worldly wealth. Jesus actually talked about this in Luke chapter 16. He said, if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? 
Now those words of heaven were added on in the translation to understand that he's not talking about money there. But really the the phrasing in the original language just means genuine wealth, true wealth. If you're not trustworthy with worldly wealth, who will trust you with genuine wealth, true riches, things that matter to God, things that are of heavenly worth. Jesus is saying, if you can't be trustworthy with worldly wealth, then how will you be trusted with things that truly matter to God, that are of spiritual and heavenly importance? This is really big. And I know it's possible many of us have never heard this before, so I want to be clear about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that for God to trust you with things that really matter to him, you must be responsible with money. What an interesting thing to hear the Savior say. God cares about how you manage money and not just the amount that you give to him and not just that you save and are wise for the future, but all of it, how you manage the resources God has given you, he actually genuinely cares about it. Not just as an analogy, not just as a metaphor, he wants you to manage money wisely. In fact, he says it's a test because if you can't manage money wisely, then how can you manage spiritual things wisely? Will you serve money or will you serve God with your money? So how can we spend our money in a way that is honoring to God? How can we be wise and trustworthy with our money? Here's the first of four principles. The first one is this. Spend with the right heart motivation. Spend with the right heart motivation. James 4 says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it, and even when you ask, you don't get it because, get this, your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. We talk about this last phrase here because you only want what will give you pleasure. The word that is literally used there is the word for spend. Literally what this means is you only want more stuff from God so you can spend it on yourselves selfishly. It's about spending. It's about how you're spending your money. And the point here is that these people had bad motives for how they wanted to spend money. We need to be very careful Whenever we spend, that our motives are pure, that they are healthy, that they are honoring to God. There are all sorts of bad motives we can have when we spend money. James mentions jealousy and selfishness here. But there's also our pride. There's our ego. Maybe we want to buy something because it makes us look better, makes us feel better about ourselves compared to other people. We can buy things out of shame. Shame that maybe we won't have stuff that's as good as someone else or or we're shamed into purchasing something. Or there's fear. We can buy things out of fear, fear of not fitting in. There's also hurt. Someone hurt us, and so we buy things to compensate for that. Or control. You know, a lot of our spending sometimes is spending as a way of self-medicating for some kind of negative thought pattern that exists in our minds. And we continue to spend to sort of self-medicate that problem. And it becomes a really unhealthy obsession for us. We buy because it gives us a little dopamine rush and it makes us not feel about our problems anymore. And then it goes away after a few minutes and so we buy again. And I'm telling you, this all comes out of financial coaching experiences that I've had. I've dealt with case after case after case of this where people became addicted to spending as a way of self-medicating for all sorts of problems. Control issues. I don't have control over most of my life. I feel helpless. I feel like I'm just kind of being pulled in every which way. But the one thing I control is my credit card. And the one thing I control is how much I buy online or from QVC or wherever else it is. And so I buy, I buy, I buy because it makes me feel like I have control. Or I buy because I want to show off. Because I want people to see how much I have, how much resources I have. I want them to see that particular animal on my clothes or whatever it is. This is the type of stuff that we do. And it's easy to think, oh, it's just an innocent little thing. It's buying with the wrong motives. It's spending money when our motives are all wrong. We have to be very, very careful about this. So before you spend, check your motives. Always ask yourself, is there some unhealthy desire behind this purchase? Is there some problem that I'm trying to treat by buying something when I should be treating the root cause of that problem? And maybe you need to seek out a trusted friend or even a professional counselor of some kind 
to be able to work through what is the root cause of the reason why I am just compulsively spending on things or buying things that I don't really need that just sit in my garage or in my house and and load up over time. Why is that happening? There are usually reasons underneath the surface. We need to check our motives. Make sure you're purchasing, spending money with the right heart motivation. Here's principle number two. It's spend with a plan. Spend with a plan. Proverbs 21.20 says, good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. Good planning leads to prosperity. This is good planning financially is what this means. It's planning financially. In this day and age, you could also apply this, a lot of it to an uh, agricultural kind of thing, planning for the crops and those sorts of things. But just in general, it's good planning will lead to prosperity, generally speaking. Jesus says in Luke 14, don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then, I love this, everyone would laugh at you. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Like he's trying to teach you some important principle, and he's like, if you don't follow what I'm saying here, everyone will laugh at you. Like they're gonna think you're ridiculous. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Jesus is using mockery as an example here. He said, everybody's going to laugh at you if you don't do this. Now, let's be clear about what Jesus had in mind here. The context that Jesus is making in the larger passage, if you look at the context, is he's saying, if you're going to be my follower, then you have to think it through carefully. You have to be absolutely sure. Count the cost. Calculate this. Do the math. Make sure you understand what it means to be my disciple because this is not just a check the church box kind of thing. This is a you are all in on following me. Either you're in or you're out. That's his point here. But what he uses as his example of making sure that you plan wisely and calculate the cost and are ready for the future is this idea of budgeting. It's planning ahead. It's making sure you have enough money to do what you're wanting to do. He says, who would start a project like a building and not budget to make sure there was enough money? I mean, what kind of person would commit to paying for something and not have the money to pay for it? Obviously, Jesus was not thinking about Americans at the time. This is something we do with regularity. The average American, about two-thirds of our country, does not have enough to handle a $1,000 emergency without going into debt. In fact, surveys show that 80% of people say they are living paycheck to paycheck. Now, please understand me. I am in no way trying to shame people that are in that situation. What I am saying is I think this is indicative of a culture and a society that does not live below our means, but lives just within or oftentimes above our means, beyond our means. We spend more than we bring in, and we have opportunities to go into all sorts of unhealthy debts for things that we don't have the money to pay for. Jesus is saying, hey, this is just common sense. Of course, if you're going to buy something, you should make sure you can pay for it. Budgeting, that's how you do it. Now, budgeting is not a hard thing to do, and budgeting looks very different for different people. Some people do it on a notebook, some people do it on a computer, some people will use a spreadsheet or an app or a website. There's all sorts of ways to do it, but it's not hard to do. All you have to do is figure out how much money is coming in each month. You take out your priority for giving, you take out your priority for saving. Then probably after that should come taxes, and what you're left with is house and car and utilities and gas and food and those types of things things that you spend money on. And you make a list of everything I spend money on right now. What you may find is that there's a lot of stuff in there that you realize, do I really need that anymore? I haven't used that in six months. I'm not sure if I need to pay for that subscription. You might find a lot of things that you can trim back and, and cut back. But a budget is not hard to do. You just line all that stuff up and you do the math. And hopefully, when it's all done, it balances out. Or maybe there's even a little bit extra left over. But budgeting is incredibly important. You can't think of a budget as something that's set in stone. A lot of people I've worked with have difficulty with budgeting because the first month after they do a budget, it doesn't line up. The categories didn't match what I said I was going to do. So I guess I just failed at budgeting. That's not the way it works. Budgeting gives you a big picture view of where you want your money to go and a way to track it along the way. And so if one month you have to adjust things or modify things or this expense came up that you didn't expect, that's okay. The win with a budget is not always staying within these strict categories. The win with a budget is making sure you are on top of how you are using the money that God has entrusted to you. That's the win with budgeting. Instead of reacting to the situation around me and then finding myself without enough money to cover a bill I should have known was coming, 
Budgets give you a way to plan and prepare and be wise for the future. Remember, Proverbs says good planning leads to prosperity. It's when you don't plan that you don't know where you are sending the money that God says he wants you to be trustworthy with. Budgeting helps you to plan. The secret sauce to living below your means is to use a budget. That is how you identify where is my money going and then pick those things that I don't really need that or I don't need as much of that or I don't need as good of that and I can start to downsize some of these things so I can live below my means. That's the secret sauce to living below your means is to use a budget. Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity. Well, we can't talk about this stuff without talking about debt. And to be honest with you, I don't really want to talk about debt this morning because we could go down a rabbit trail here that is just going to take us hours. There's so much stuff we could talk about with debt. And honestly, a lot of what I have worked with people on is dealing with all of the debt that they had amassed in their lives because those are the types of people that would come for financial coaching. But we need to talk about debt and we need to clear up some misconceptions about debt. And there are some things that some preachers and teachers and churches have taught about debt that seem good on the surface but are actually not entirely biblical and have had unintended consequences that have hurt people more than they have helped people. So it's very possible that I will step on some toes with what I'm about to say. But I hope you'll understand where it's coming from and that I think this is a much more biblical view when it comes to debt. You ready? Here we go. Spend without going into unwise debt. Spend without going into unwise debt. Many of us have been taught in the past that all debt is a sin or that all debt is unwise. The proof text that gets used for this is Proverbs 22.7, which says, Just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. Sometimes that is translated as slave. Servant, bond servant, slave to the lender. And the way that gets used is to say that, well, the Bible says that whoever borrows money has made themselves a slave or a servant to whoever loans money. You don't want to be a slave, do you? So you should never borrow money. It is always unwise, the Bible says. Here's the thing. That's not at all what this verse is saying. Not even close. If you look at the context of this passage, what is in view here is corrupt people who are oppressing the poor and abusing them. The idea here is not that all borrowing is wrong or a sin or unwise. The idea here is that there are some people who are corrupt and oppress other people and they abuse the system, they abuse lending in order to make slaves of other people. That really happened in Bible times. This is not written about credit cards or mortgages or car loans or anything like that. The Bible does not say that by having a visa, you are now visa's slave. And yet that is oftentimes how this passage has been used. What it's saying is that when corrupt people lend money, bad things can happen. And that was literally true. In Bible times, many times, if you did not pay back your debts, you or your children were sold into slavery. This is not some metaphor here where it's just saying, if you borrow anything, it's like you're a slave. No, it is saying you need to watch out because there are corrupt and oppressive people who will turn lending into an opportunity to create slaves. It's a warning for sure. It's a warning against abusive debt for sure. But this in no way is saying that all debt is wrong or unwise or sin. And hey, this is not the way God designed loans or lending to work in ancient Israel, by the way. In fact, in ancient Israel, God gave them protections for lending and borrowing. And in some instances, he even encouraged it. I'm going to show you that. But first, I want to explain why am I even talking about this? Because why would I risk the emails I might get after saying these things? <laughs> Here's the thing. For a long time in churches, well-meaning people have taught hard and fast rules that do not come from God's word, but they have claimed they were God's. They have claimed they were God's rules. And so what happens is, in most cases, young people who grow up in the church or start visiting the church or whatever it is, they hear some of these hard and fast rules and they go up to the pastor and they say, I know you said this and they're, they're devouring God's word and they're trying to find, where is this in here? And the pastor says, no, you just can't question it, you just have to believe it. I know you said it comes from this verse, but it looks to me like this verse is talking about something else. You just have to believe me and trust me. We have done this in our churches and it is driving young people away. I was talking with one of our student ministries pastors this morning and I shared this with him. He said, yep, you nailed it. That's exactly what happens. 
We create extra rules that God didn't create, but we say they were God's rules. And what happens is people walk away and think, if you aren't telling me the truth about that, if you're trying to draw an extra line that God didn't about that, then what else aren't you telling me? What else isn't true? That's why I think this is important and worth talking about. Now, I understand why people do it. I completely understand why people would say this. It's the exact same rationale the Pharisees had. It's what Jesus rebuked them for. It's the idea of saying, well, we want people to be really careful about this over here. We never want them to cross these lines over here because these are really bad. And so we're going to create a much bigger line right here to make sure no one ever crosses that line. It's called building hedges around the law. The Pharisees did it all the time. It's very specifically what Jesus rebuked them for. This is what we have often done in the church world. In fact, I have talked to people who publicly teach that debt is a sin or that debt is always wrong or unwise in God's eyes and they admit privately it's not true. And I ask them, do you have a mortgage? And almost every one of them has said, well, yeah. Then is debt always wrong or always a sin or always unwise or are you being a hypocrite? They don't like that question. Here's what they respond to me with, because I've, I've had this conversation many times with teachers of this stuff. Here's what they always respond with, every single time. Yeah, but debt is so dangerous and so powerful, and so many people abuse it. I know it's not always wrong. I know the Bible doesn't actually say what I'm saying, but if I take such a dogmatic position about it, maybe I'll be able to scare people away from it enough that they'll never touch it. Can I tell you what happens as a result of that? People never learn how to manage debt wisely, They never learn when there are times that there is actually a a wise use of debt in some instances that's perfectly fine. And so when they find themselves in a difficult situation, they go out and they get an unwise debt because they've never learned how to handle it well. And they're too ashamed to ask anyone for help because they've been told it's always wrong, it's always a sin when you do that. And then six to 12 months later, they come and see me. And they say, I'm in this horrible situation I got this title loan, it's got 300% interest, and I couldn't pay it off. So to pay that one off, I got another title loan on my other car, it's 400% interest. What am I gonna do? You're gonna lose your cars. Why didn't they seek help earlier? In every case, I didn't want anybody to know that I needed to have any debt. And so I just went and make a foolish choice. I have seen so many people who, because of the shame that we have attached to this idea of debt, have ended up in really challenging situations and they've made poor choices because we have not been honest with them about what the Bible really actually says. We have got to stop the shame-based spirituality that says, we're going to draw this hard line here even though God doesn't, but just trust us, just believe us. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Let me show you what the Bible really says about debt. God never once says that debt is a sin. He never once says that all debt is unwise. Debt is like money. It is a tool that can be used wisely or unwisely. It can be used well or used poorly. It is a very, very powerful tool. And used irresponsibly, like many, many people do, it can be very dangerous. And so you need to be careful with it. But we cannot say it is always a sin or always unwise, and we cannot attach shame to that. God didn't. God said in Deuteronomy 15, if there are any poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive in the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. And that's not give, that is lend. That is very specifically lend to be paid back. Why would God say this? Here's why. Sometimes giving people stuff is the worst thing you can do for them. How many of you know that's true already? Sometimes giving people something is the worst thing you can do for them, but they do need help in some way. Sometimes lending to them is actually the more gracious and kind and loving thing to do. You all know people who have just given someone something and then given more and then given more and then given more and we have a word for those people. What's it called? Enablers. Those people are enablers. They are enabling that person to continue in their immaturity and their irresponsibility because they keep bailing them out. They keep giving them things. And we actually in our society and our Christian culture have oftentimes glorified the idea of giving things away when in reality we are hurting that person many times more than we're helping them. We're not teaching them responsibility. It's so much easier and so much faster to give something than to say, I will walk through this with you. Or to say, I will loan it to you, but here are the terms and we're gonna work on this together and you're gonna pay it back. I'm going to teach you responsibility through this. 
One time a young man that I knew came to me and he uh, needed help preparing for an expense that he had not planned for. And so he said, can you help me out with this? And I said, I'd be happy to help you out with this. I'm gonna write us up a contract. And I'm gonna give you the money, but I'm gonna expect you to pay me back. And here's the date and there's no interest or anything like that. But we're gonna work on this together and we're gonna make sure that you learn so that you are prepared for future times like this and don't have to do this. What did I do? I cared for him. I valued him. I helped him in a tight situation. What didn't I do? I didn't enable him. I did not just give it to him. I did not teach him that if he gets into a difficult situation, I'm just gonna give him something he can come back for more later. Sometimes lending can actually be a gracious and helpful thing. And that's what God is saying here. In Deuteronomy 24, he says, if you lend anything to your neighbor, do not enter his house to pick up the item he is giving as security, his collateral. You must wait outside while he goes in and brings it out to you. If your neighbor is poor and gives you his cloak as security, collateral, for a loan, do not keep the cloak overnight. Return the cloak to its owner by sunset so he can stay warm through the night and bless you. And the Lord your God will count you as righteous. Never take advantage of the poor and destitute laborers, whether they are fellow Israelites or foreigners living in your towns. Just think for a moment about what God says here. If there are people among you who are needy, sometimes the better thing for you to do for them is to lend to them, but be gracious in that lending. This is not God being anti-debt. This is God being anti-abuse of debt. Be gracious in the collateral. It kind of shocks me in this instance that God is saying, hey, if your neighbor is so poor and he asks you for a loan and you say, yes, I'll loan you the money for this period of time and the collateral is his coat, God doesn't say, just give him the money. He doesn't say that. He says, just make sure that you don't hold on to that coat when it's cold at night. Make sure you're gracious in this. God will count you as righteous. You who just lended to someone, you who just allowed someone to borrow money for you, you who, if we misinterpreted Proverbs 22, would be making that person a slave. It's not making that person a slave. It's helping them in a difficult situation, but with godly principles and protections. There were other protections that God had for the Israelites when it comes to lending. There were loan terms, different loan terms for different people. If you were an Israelite, there were perks to being a part of the nation. And so your loan term could not exceed seven years. That was the maximum loan term you could have if it was an Israelite lending to an Israelite. If you were a non-Israelite and you were getting a loan from an Israelite, God didn't put any restriction. In fact, he specifically says there's no maximum. Same thing with interest. Some people will point to the idea that God says you're not allowed to charge interest on a loan and say, see, all the loans and debts we have today are unbiblical because God says you can't charge interest. They should read their Bibles more. In the very next verse, it says, but if they're not an Israelite, you can charge interest. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the lending that happens today does not involve Israelites to Israelites in ancient Judaism. And so the idea that we should take this one verse out of context and say, see, proves my point, everyone needs to follow this, it's just not sound biblical interpretation. And I know it sounds like I'm hammering on this a lot, but I think it's an important principle, a very important principle, that we be truthful and honest about what God's word says, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's easier to draw a hard line, even when it's more difficult to explain the nuances of the truth and get into the weeds with people and walk through life with them than it is to just say, hard and fast rule, don't do it. That's what God has called us to. Now these laws are not directly applicable to us today. What they reveal is God's perspective on debt. Not as sin, not as always unwise, but as a tool that can be used wisely or unwisely. It can be used for good, it can be used for bad. It's a very dangerous tool when used irresponsibly, but it is a tool. What's important for us is to learn the difference between a wise debt and an unwise debt. And to be honest, most of the debts people get into are unwise debts. That's why it's so easy to just draw that hard rule and say, just stay away from it altogether. But there are, every time that's spoken, there are a lot of people who know their, tend to know their Bible better and understand money management well, who kind of go, yeah, but not always. So let's be truthful about this. Let's be honest about this. We need to learn how to tell the difference. How do you tell the difference between a wise debt and an unwise debt? It's very simple. You do the math. It all comes down to math. How many of you are great at math? How many of you are not so great at math? All of you need to be paying attention to the people that raise their hands first. I'm serious. 
And if you struggle in this area, you need to work with someone, find someone, maybe it's one of our financial coaches, that will help you do the math. You have to be very intentional about this to be wise if you are encountering any kind of debt. Don't avoid getting advice because you think you will be judged or you think it's a shameful thing. God does not treat it that way. Now, there are many types of unwise debt that we can get into. Uh, One great example of this would be an adjustable rate mortgage. But there are instances where it makes sense. All right, all of our real estate agents out there are going, but what about this situation? Yeah, I know. In some circumstances, it does actually make sense to do an adjustable rate mortgage. For most people, it's a terrible, terrible idea. Title loans on cars with crazy high interest rates, they're designed to end up taking your car unless you manage to break out of that cycle. Payday loans are often this way. Reverse mortgages can be this way. If the monthly payments don't cover expenses, I've seen people with some horrible situations there. People that pay only the minimum on credit cards and allow their balance to pile up with interest over time. People that constantly transfer balance, balances to different credit cards and live with this continual debt. But that means they're not living below their means. They're living with unwise debt. There are times when debt can be entered into wisely. I'm not going to get into all the specifics here. They're, they're too nuanced to dive into. I'll just give you a couple examples. Uh, one easy one is a mortgage. Mortgages can be wise debts when compared to renting for many, many years. And so you can go into a mortgage that's a 30-year fixed mortgage with 20% down and the monthly payment's only 25% of your monthly income and that's generally considered a wise debt. Even better if you can do a 15-year fixed mortgage. There's a lot of individual situations that come into play there but generally that's a wise debt. Sometimes a car loan can be a wise debt. There are certain instances. Now for most people, buying cash for a used car is the best way to go. But there are exceptions to that. The principle is spend without going into unwise debt. That means you have to do the math or you have to find someone that can help you do the math. And we'll have some more information on that in a little bit. What do you do if you've already taken on some unwise debt? It's piling up. I don't know what to do about it. Let me give you some examples here. First of all, you need to cut expenses wherever you can. You cut, cut, cut wherever you can. You cut until it hurts until you are living like you have never lived before so that you can pay off that debt until the math makes sense. Some people will call this a um, a debt management plan where you will take certain debts and you will attack them and try to get rid of them as quickly as possible and then you'll move on. Some people would call it a debt snowball or a debt avalanche. There are little differences there. But the important thing is you are cutting everywhere you can in your expenses until you get to the point where you are living below your means. And then everything you're using from above your means, you are throwing at one of your debts. Now, it could be the smallest balance. You do that if you want a quick victory of a, of a debt paid off. Or it could be the highest interest rate. You do that if you care the most about saving the most money. Either way, you identify that debt. You keep making pay, minimum payments on the other debts. And you just attack that debt. And once you have completed that debt, you don't congratulate yourself on the back and go out and buy a big screen TV. You take everything you were paying toward that debt and you put that into the next debt, either the next largest balance or the next highest interest rate, whichever way you want to do that. Again, if you go at it with the highest interest rate, you will save the most money. If you need the the victory of the quick payoff, you'd start with the lowest balance amount. Cutting expenses can be hard. I know that. I've worked with so many people where we've sat down, we've done the budget with them, we've looked at what they're spending money on, there's all these different things, and I start showing them, you need to cut this and this and this and this, and just their mouth drops and their eyes get all glassy. Like, my life is over. I'm about to lose my Netflix account. (laughs) And and I'm serious. I mean, this is the hardest part for people. Like, how am I going to cut this? So let me give you some examples of what you can do. Instead of just cutting, you replace You replace instead of remove. Here are a few examples. You can replace paid TV with an antenna. You can replace Netflix with free YouTube and TV channel websites that post their shows. You can replace Spotify with free Spotify or Pandora. You can replace the fancy phone package with an off-brand one that uses the same towers. You can replace expensive food with cheaper food. You can replace going out to eat with special meals at home. You can replace movie theater with cheap rentals. You can replace designer brand purchases with off-brand. You can replace a vacation with a staycation. You can replace the gym membership with dumbbells and a morning run routine. The point is there are all sorts of ways that you can make this hurt not as much by replacing instead of removing. And here's what you have to understand. You're not doing this forever. You're doing this for now. 
because you've dug yourself into a hole and this is how you get out of it. You cut, cut, cut everywhere you can so you're living below your means so that you can throw everything you can at that debt and when you're out of that debt hole, then you can re-examine your situation, do a budget and say, wow, I can actually pay for this again and still live below my means. We're not saying you cut this forever. We're saying you do this for now until you've removed the unwise debt. All right, one more principle. This one is honestly the most important, but it's, it's very easy to communicate. It doesn't take as long. There's not as much nuance to it. Spend with a heart of worship and thankfulness. When you spend money, have you ever done this? Have you ever spent money on something and as you're doing it, worshiped God in that moment for the ability to do that? It's a really interesting thing. Have you ever thanked God as you bought your food? Have you ever thanked God for the resources he provides that allow you to go buy even something that's fun? Like, thank you, God, for allowing me to have the resources to purchase this thing that's just gonna be a lot of fun. I'm gonna enjoy having this. And it's all because of you. And thank you for your graciousness. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Everything you spend money about, God cares about. Doesn't mean you can't have nice things. Doesn't mean you can't uh, buy fun stuff doesn't mean that everything you have has to be given away or that everything you buy has to be just the bare bones necessities. Worshiping God should be integrated into everything we do in our lives. Every purchase we make should be an act of worship to God. Now this is assuming that you've got your giving priority taken care of and your saving priority and that you've evaluated your motivations and none of them are bad and you're budgeting wisely and this isn't an unwise debt that we're talking about and after all of that is done, can you say as you purchase something, thank you God for allowing me to do this. I'm gonna enjoy this and enjoy your creation, but I'm really appreciating worshiping you, not what I'm about to purchase. Solomon figured this out. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5, it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this indeed is a gift from God. Every time we spend money, it is a gift from God. What an incredible way to take worship out of just being on Sunday morning and into the rest of our week to just integrate it into everything we do. What we spend on, what we purchase, what we buy, an act of worship to God. It's all his money. He has given us wealth. We've received it from him. And so we should thank him for it and praise him for it, no matter what we're using it on at the moment, as long as we've done it wisely. So as we close this series... Remember that money is not evil. It is a tool that can be used wisely or unwisely. And it's a test from God. So give generously, save wisely, and spend worshipfully. And I hope that this series has helped you in some way. Maybe it's given you some conversation starters for you and your spouse or your family this week to talk through how are you managing money wisely. But I know there may be some people here who are struggling in some deeper ways and need someone to help them. The first thing I'll tell you about is the class Financial Peace University. And you'll be able to register for this very soon. It'll take place here in September. You can go through Financial Peace University. There is a cost associated with that. There are materials to buy and and videos to buy. Um, But if you need help with that, let us know. Uh, But if you go through this course, it will change the way you look at money. Now, you may not agree with everything that's communicated in there. There's some opinions that are in there that you may walk away and go, eh, I don't quite agree with that. But there'll be some incredible principles and truths that you will learn. And it's a phenomenal process to walk through for how to handle and approach money. And if you need more specific help, we have financial coaches here who would love to work with you. It's completely confidential. Just email financialpeace at efree.org and let us know. I won't see it. We have, we have actually a volunteer, it's not even a staff member, that runs this account and will connect you with a financial coach to help you through whatever situation you're going through, whether it's evaluating a future financial change or getting out of a, a challenging problem that you found yourself in. We want to help you with that. There's one last thing I have to say. I know I'm long, but this is important. We've been talking a lot about debt this morning and finances, and the reality is that there is one debt that's far more important than any kind of financial debt, and that is our debt to God. We have a debt to God because we have sinned. We are all sinners, and so we owe God more than we can ever pay. None of us can pay for or pay off the debt that we owe to God because we are sinners. It's like we owe a billion dollars, but here's the thing. Jesus paid that price for us. It's like someone came and said, I know you owe a billion dollars, but I'm gonna pay that off for you if you'll believe that I will. That's what Jesus did for us. 
Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. That word literally in the original language is debt. He canceled your debt that you owed to God and nailed it to the cross. And he offers it out to us and says, if you will believe in me and believe that I can, I will eliminate your debt to God. How amazing is that? It is so much more important than anything we can do with our money. Praise God. So if that is you today and you need a relationship with Jesus, we're going to have people after the service who would love to talk with you about that or you can find me and we can talk about that, introduce you to Jesus and the difference that he makes in our lives. We're going to have communion together, so would you bow your heads with me as we prepare for that. Heavenly Father, it is incredible how much you have shown us in your word and taught us even about money, a lot about money. So thank you, Jesus, for caring about every aspect of our lives. And since you care about it, we want to care about it too. We care that we're living our lives in such a way and using money in such a way that is wise, that it represents you well, that it glorifies you, not just with what we give, not just with what we save, but even what we spend. I pray that this week it would be honoring and worshipful to you, that we would find ways to worship you with what you have provided for us, whether it is a lot or a little. It is all a gift from you, even the ability to enjoy it. So let us worship you in it to worship you, the creator, and not the creation. And now, Lord, as we participate in taking communion together, we remember the debt that you paid for us, the sin that we have that separates us from you, that you wiped clean when we trusted in you. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for dying for us on the cross, for your blood and your body just offered up for us so that we can have a relationship with you and for the freedom that comes from that the most incredible thing in the world. Thank you for transforming our lives. We remember it now. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.